Tonight's talk will be kind of an overview of um, the idea of mindfulness, what it is, uh, mindfulness slash insight, what we're trying to accomplish here, and uh, building on, hopefully, some of the ideas that Melissa introduced in this morning's talk. So in life, when we're faced with uh, any kind of important decision or just have to make choices, as it were, we tend to um, rely especially heavily on circuits of the brain that we might refer to as analytical, uh, con- uh, conceptual, narrative, storytelling. In other words, if somebody came up to you and said, wow, have I got a great job for you. You won't believe it. This is what it is. And started to describe a new uh, possible employment when it came time afterwards to make a decision about whether to take that job or not, you would probably visualize in your mind, uh, sort of create images of what this job might look like, visualizing yourself going there to the job, seeing yourself in a place that you actually haven't been. You might visualize great things happening, or if you're like me from the Upper West Side, you might and then from the Lower East Side, you might visualize uh, how terrible it could possibly be. You might go into catastrophizing. You, we might tell a story about whether this job looks good for us on paper and whether the title would be good and how much money we'd make as opposed to this amount of money we're making right now and whether we'd be able to travel or how much more of the rent we could afford to pay and whether we'd be able to move. And so what we're doing is we're in essence what's called representing the world uh, in our heads. Representing, in other words, we're painting a visual and a set of ideas that represents the actual lived world to try to make a decision. You're not actually at the job when you're visualizing what it'll be like. You're trying to figure out whether it's a good idea to take it or not. If somebody asks whether uh, you want to uh, leave your job or whether you're happy at it, you might visualize all the things that have happened at your job. You might visualize things that people have said tasks that you do, creative skills that are encouraged. So you're representing your job in your mind. You're not actually there. You're just relying on the left hemisphere's circuits, which are able to create images, representations, interpretations, little mini-movies in the mind. And uh, we're, I think in general, often unaware of how much we rely 
on sort of abstract representations of our actual life as a way to uh, not only make choices and decisions, but to just create a sense of shape, coherence, meaning, purpose. We constantly rely on these interpretations. One study by Killingsworth and Gilbert of Harvard showed that roughly 50% of the time people are actually thinking about things they're not actually doing. They're actually visualizing, creating alternative realities in their mind. In other words, we're daydreaming or remembering or worrying about something or fantasizing, but we're not focused on what we're doing. And interestingly enough, um, it turns out that that's the significant area of life where we suffer the most, because eventually uh, it turns out uh, speculative thoughts and representative thoughts, thoughts about what we're not doing, tend to head towards really dark negative ideations. Most of the trains, the thought trains we can hop aboard will take us nowhere good. Now that's not to say that all thinking is uh, to be cast off. In fact, uh, a large amount of um, the Dharma and the Buddha's teachings, uh, even some of the core tools we have to develop if we want to get anywhere near liberation, require evaluative thinking, knowing how to observe what we're doing, uh, think about it, think about if there's other ways to do it, how we can do it in a more efficient or pleasurable or meaningful way. But this idea that um, we have to rely on these sort of circuits as a way to navigate through life. When push comes to shove, when something difficult happens, when an opportunity happens, when we are hit with stunning news, the most important thing to do is to gather up our thoughts, as it were, to generally what we use when we refer to the idea of processing. Unfortunately, we've come to associate processing uh, new information with thinking about it going away and trying to figure out a way we can take new information and fit it into the narrative story of our life and see what kind of meaning does this make for me. Oh, now I'm in a relationship. What does that mean? Now I'm not in a relationship. What does that mean? Now I'm married. What does that mean? Now I'm divorced, etc. We try to uh, essentially tie life up into... Um, a sort of a little inner movie that's a narrative and try to have a basic meaning for it. Now, one of the interesting uh, developments that's happened in the last, let's say, 110 years is um, when... Uh, where's my notes over here? Oh, somewhere. Uh, in... Uh, Yes, here it is. Uh, about 120 years ago, Freud was the first major Western thinker that proposed that thought 
was just a small part of the human experience. And in fact, he even went so far as to say that um, the, the story we tell, the, the inner chatter that tries to make sense of life, that tries to represent it in language, and the little visuals that create little narratives of where we've been and where we're going, he said, actually, are only a small part of not only um, our experience, but actually played far less of a role in our actions and behaviors than we could suspect. And he proposed the existence of what we now know to be absolutely, of course, true, the existence that there's a vast bulk of um, human processing going on beneath the level of consciousness, which we're generally not aware of, uh, and then in adult life spend even more time making sure that we're unaware of it and over-relying again and again on the uh, idea that thought, our inner chatter, our rational uh, narrative minds can help us make uh, a meaningful life entirely on their own. So, um, when Freud came around, of course, he was, not, this uh, observation was not well received. Many, many philosophers pilloried him, including Sartre and the existentialists and uh, the rationalists and so forth, all basically were uh, aghast by this idea. And uh, this is no different, I would propose, than uh, the revolution that happened during the time of Copernicus and Galileo, when for uh, millennia humans assumed, because we're on the earth, that everything revolves around the earth, and therefore the earth must be the center of everything, and therefore the earth is pretty much the reason why everything exists and everything is dependent upon the earth, and uh, that's the way things should be. And so when Galileo came around and he said, er, it turns out that's not the case, that uh, we are in fact heliocentric, we revolve around the sun, uh, Galileo was pilloried and uh, punished, put on trial, um, because the threat of taking uh, us out of the epicenter of the universe meant that we weren't as important as we thought we were. In fact, we were just another set of beings on another planet in another solar system amongst untold millions and that we're actually not as important or big or central as we'd like to believe. So I would like to propose that it's the exact same uh, fear that greeted first Freud and um, uh, then a whole succession of great psychologists and neuroscientists who one by one showed over the last 120 years that even less and less and less of um, our behaviors, our actions, our speech acts, our, um, the way we are, what constitutes our basic experience is in fact not only uh, not largely embedded in thought, but actually thought plays an exceedingly small role 
in many of the decisions we make. And uh, its role is vastly different than what we believed. And furthermore, a lot of the suffering in our lives comes from the tension that comes about because we want to be in control. We want to control our emotions. We want to control our feelings. We want to control the world around us. We want to essentially establish dominance. And um, instead what we're experiencing, much like those uh, um, early doubters of Galileo, is that increasingly consciousness, thought, the interpretive mind that we spend the bulk of our conscious adult lives uh, identifying with, in fact, is uh, as far less efficacy than we uh, like to believe, than we want to believe, and that we live as if we have that kind of control. Um, I'm going to take you on a little tour, if you will, of your brain and my brain, just to give you an idea of just how late in the day and how little uh, of a role actually consciousness plays, the thinking mind, so that maybe we can get an appreciation of uh, what it is I'm trying to get across and then I'm going to tie it into mindfulness and why mindfulness is a uh, such an important tool that allows us to uh, essentially integrate all of the different processes into awareness so that we're no longer uh, trying to steer ourselves about, push ourselves, beat ourselves up in ways that uh, don't lead anywhere near peace of mind and actually lead to very often in life stalemates, decisions that can't be made, choices that constantly get put off and so forth. So the uh, earliest part of the evolutionary brain is the brainstem. It's what is the host of what is known as the reptilian brain. And I'm not trying to be insulting. We all have a reptilian brain. It's all, uh, it's housed in the brainstem and medulla. And it's the part of our brain that... Um, is responsible for breathing and digestion. It's the part that uh, controls the old parts of the vagal vagus nerve, which run down the uh, back of your neck and through the chest and stomach. The interesting thing about the reptilian brain is that uh, reptiles, uh, when they are threatened, they pretty much do only one thing, which is they play dead, they freeze, they stop. Um, and so the reptilian brain in human beings creates what's known as a freeze response, the old freeze response, where we literally stop breathing, stop digesting, everything in the body goes numb. It's the old parasympathetic nervous system that kicks in. If you encounter out here, which would be unusual to say the least, a grizzly bear, um, uh, before you died, you would, <laughs> you 
you would, all of your limbs, your viscera, your intestines, your chest, everything would essentially, the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagal vagus nerve of the brainstem would just say, let's play dead. Because that's our only chance of survival. And even if I don't, even if I do die, my death won't be that painful because I won't be experiencing any of it. Because when the old freeze kicks in, um, basically we, what's called dissociate. We dissociate from experience. We stop taking in. The parasympathetic nervous system switches off a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is what stores your memory. So if you're in a sudden terrifying shock, when you go into freeze state, you won't be recording normal memories anymore. A small part of your brain will, and it will create maybe flashback traumas. But that's another story for another day. Um, the only way to speak to the reptilian brain is, well, there's two ways. One, you can rock, because actually reptiles rock themselves back into a sense of security. That's why so many people love to rock back and forth on rocking chairs, hammocks, uh, things like that. It basically kicks in a perhaps uh, felt sense of being uh, carried around by a mother or in a, in a womb state. Not sure why, but um, it seems to work according to the research I've read. Certainly the more effective way uh, is long exhalations. So if you're absolutely traumatized, uh, terrified, you're in a situation where you're about to lose uh, consciousness, you're feeling dizzy, uh, extending the length of the exhalations actually tends to deactivate the parasympathetic nervous system and tends to re-establish another part of your brain, a higher up part of your brain called the mammalian. And that is also in human beings the midbrain. Now that's the area where you have your fight, flight, or freeze. And in Buddhist lingo, this is the area of the brain that controls feelings, or what the Buddha called Vedana. Feelings are states of essentially saying, I don't like what's, come, what's happening right now, I want this to stop, I want to get out of here, I want this to end. And Buddhist lingo, that's Dukkha Vedana, discomfort, make this experience end. Then there's the positive experience, which is, oh, I really like what's going on. This is great. Give me more of it. Let me have more. Give me some more of that dopamine. Let me have, uh, let's continue in this experience. That's Sukha Vedana. And you'll know that because instead of the clenching of the muscles in the body that your midbrain controls, such as your arms, your chest, the front of your stomach, not the, not the, um, the insides of the abdomen, but the muscles in the front of the abdomen, the legs, um, the, the shoulder muscles, those will, under uh, negative feelings, will contract. And when we're in good situations which we like, the body and those muscles will relax. They will stop clenching. They will become uh, expansive which is when we're in a, a positive survival state, the chest tends to get bigger, the belly relax, the shoulders pull back and expand down, so we go into a dominant physical state that says, I'm happy with what's going on. 
The third kind of feeling that the midbrain controls is essentially um, really nothing's going on right now that impacts my survival either way. I'm not in the presence of any uh, thing that uh, will reward me. I'm not in the presence of anything that's a threat. So I will just keep the status going. And the Buddha called that neutral feelings, no change. So your midbrain, the host of fight, flight, or freeze, the host of both uh, essentially uh, craving things that feel good for our immediate survival and running away from threats, is the, in Buddhist terms, makes itself known to us by feelings in the body that are clearly indicative of comfort or discomfort. Not having anything to do with pre-existing injuries, but as a direct response to things that are going on. So that's the second brain. Moving on up, we now reach our third stop, and my personal favorite part of the brain, which would be the right hemisphere, and what the Buddha calls the citta. The right hemisphere is the host of one's attention, one's nonverbal thoughts, i.e. moods, advanced human emotions. And um, it is the realm of relational attachment. All of your tendencies and relationships, the people you're attracted to, the people you're not, the emotional responses that you have when you're in social settings that are not in your control are largely housed in the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere directs where you shift your attention to and from. Uh, interestingly enough, all of us start our lives largely viewing the world and interacting with our caretakers in the right hemisphere. When we're born, the left hemisphere is barely wired. Uh, it's very little of it shows up on fMRI scans and of infants and PET scans. But what we do see is that um, from nearly a month or two after birth, the right hemisphere is just building axons, dendrite connections. It's just wiring itself up. It's building all of its uh, experiential wisdom based on the kind of experiences we have in relationship with other people. Now, infants don't use language to connect. They use verbal expressions. They cry, they stomp, they shout, they smile, they uh, put their hands in front of their heads, they try to do all kinds of nonverbal signals to their caretakers, letting them know that what their needs are. To the degree that a caretaker can interpret or at least tolerate these emotional expressions, the child writes those experiences in that, that part of the brain. And those expectations will last for the bulk of our adult life, unless we do. We spend a lot of money on therapy or uh, meeting with uh, people one-on-one -on -one to help us adjust our early emotional impulses and coping strategies. So in Buddhist language, the emotional mind is most apparent by the way it affects our attention. When, as the, in the 
they, the mindfulness suttas, when the Buddha wants us to bring attention, as I'll talk about, he wants us to see what the mind is like uh, when it's expansive, when it's narrow, when it's jumpy, when it's settled, when it's, uh, uh, what do you call it, unsurpassed, nothing, it can hold anything. So that's um, one of the ways the emotional mind speaks to us. I would propose that if the Buddha was uh, writing the Four Foundations Sutta today, he would also include facial expressions because the new vagal, vagus nerve, the old one goes down and creates freeze in conjunction with the reptilian brain. But the modern vagal vagus nerve runs down the front of the face and creates facial expressions. So um, when we're in an emotional state, we not only have our attention span directed by the emotional mind, but we also have our, the tone of our voice, whether we, the, the kind of muscle, musculature around the eyes change, the musculature around the mouth. So there's uh, things that we have no, muscles we have actually no volitional control over. They're not hooked up to the left hemisphere. You can't, uh, you can force yourself to smile and lift these muscles, but you actually cannot move, even if you want, a lot of the muscles around your eyes. Those are controlled by the right hemisphere, which in your adult life increasingly is uh, unconscious or implicitly directed. So if we want to understand what the emotional mind is saying to us, uh, the first two ways would be noticing when the mind keeps pulling us away from something we want to pay attention to and pulls our attention to something that feels uh, inopportune, something we don't want to think about, something that is getting in the way, times that we procrastinate, times that we remember old memories that are unpleasant and we can't figure out why. That's a sure sign that the emotional circuits of the brain are trying to communicate with us. Likewise, when we feel, when we speak about something, the tone of our voice shifts. We can't be as funny as we want or as confident as we want. We start feeling a heaviness in the eyes, maybe tears forming or heaviness beneath the forehead. All these are signs that the right hemisphere is trying to say that something is important going on. Now, I'll tell you that that your emotional brain really pretty much cares only about one thing. <laughs> it cares about how securely connected you are to other people. That's what the right hemisphere's job is. The left hemisphere's job is to go out, accomplish, try to achieve things, try to think great thoughts, try to represent life. But the right hemisphere just wants us to be securely connected with other human beings. We are pack animals, and so we have um, two very contrasting uh, requirements that the higher regions of the brain have to do. The left hemisphere has to be goal-directed. It has to create a story of our life, where we've been, where we are now, where we're heading. It's what Gazaniga calls the interpreter tries to make sense. But it's also the slowest circuits in the brain. 
It gets information the last. And generally by the time it arises, a lot of the decisions have already been made. By who? By the reptilian, the mammalian, and the right hemisphere. The three sections we've covered. We've made decisions through fight, flight, freeze, uh, craving impulses that have made themselves known as gut feelings or intuition. We've made decisions by emotional information contained by where the attention is drawn and what, um, what mood we're in, what images from the past pop up out of the blue. So, of course, what this means is that very often in life there's a war going on. A war going on between one hemisphere of the brain that believes, like the pre-Galilean human beings, that it is completely in control, the realm of our thoughts, our thinking, our logical mind, the mind that is goal-directed, the mind that wants to accomplish things, the mind that wants to have a uh, life that is really big and interesting so that when we talk about it, other people will be interested. The mind that wants to, when it encounters great things, wants to take a photograph to show our friends. The mind that wants to represent everything and hold on to it as a keepsake until we can turn it into a story. But then we have other parts of the body that are not representing life. They're actually living life. The Emotional circuits of the right hemisphere are literally speaking to us through a whole host of means, but it's actually telling us not about things that might happen in the future or stuff that might have happened in the past or the way things might have been or the way other people might be thinking about us. It's simply giving us a very simple set of messages. Right now in this moment, I feel safely connected, so I'm going to create feelings of joy. I'm going to create moods of elation and happiness. Or it's going to be sending negative emotions telling us that we don't feel securely connected to other people. It'll create sadness, grief, despair, melancholy, loneliness, isolation, and so forth. So all of those are the fast circuits. Say, reptilian is the fastest circuits in the brain because they're closest to the spine. So they get, if we're under a deep threat, like a, a you know, the grizzly bear or runaway truck coming down to a, in our direction, that will be activated first and we will wind up uh, following its impulses because they are the fastest and the strongest, essentially. They have the strongest neural heft to them. The, the brainstem controls so many of the neurotransmitters that control our actions. So assuming that we're not about to die or something of great import to our well-being is happening on that level, then the next level is the mammalian brain. And it will be creating feelings. And those feelings of either I like what's going on or I don't like what's going on, let's make this end, or I don't care. And the way those are playing out is in the muscles and in the areas that you feel the urge to get up, do something, what's called action potential. Sometimes it will be in the stomach or the chest, the shoulders, the arms, the legs. Feelings of comfort and discomfort. Then the next fastest circuits are the emotional brain. 
the musculature in the face, where our attention is being pulled, and other bits of information. I should mention that the breath is part of the reptilian brain, so that's, uh, if we're really terrified, the breath becomes rapid very quickly. So, uh, the role of mindfulness is to integrate all of these different parts rather than to, to end the war that we have in our experience, rather than uh, basically relying on distractions to push away the feelings of panic, the feelings of sadness, the feelings of loneliness, the feelings of disconnection, the discomfort that we sometimes feel in social situations, all of the messages from the uh, unconscious regions of the brain is to integrate. Now this is um, exceedingly important. All in psychology, at least my, some of my favorite uh, psychologists, all of them talk about the role of reintegration as a key component, which ba is based on one, becoming aware of these messages, and then two, developing ways to talk to or alleviate the old fears that are creating urges and impulses to run away from new opportunities. But rather than simply forcing our adult agenda onto the emotional mind, we actually hear the emotional mind's concerns as it speaks to us through the body, through the breath, through nonverbal moods and attention states. And we uh, hear what it's saying and then we learn to address its um, concerns. In Alice Miller's work, it's known as the inner child, as well as other psychologists, Jung talked about uh, the shadow self, which was a compensation for our day-to-day -day lives. Freud talked about the return of the repressed. The Buddha had many terms for, for it. Yonisamanasikara, uh, Yatha Buddha, Nanatasana. Uh, it all based on the idea that there's so much of us that we've been turning a deaf ear to, and the role of spiritual practice is to reconnect with all that we've repressed because it's inconvenient. All the emotions that our peers and we've, our co-workers have told us are inconvenient to show in our jobs. We learn to reconnect. We learn to reconnect with all of the impulses that we were told would lead to shaming and reject, rejection and abandonment. We reconnect with everything we've buried, everything we've left behind in our journey to try to find success and achievement and meaning in our adult life. So, um, peace, the peace that we're aiming for here is not something that comes about through what's called a spiritual bypass. The spiritual bypass is the idea that if you know, that Melissa or I or Kathy could give you a meditation that will magically make sadness or anger or frustration go away. And that is absolutely not the spiritual journey. In fact, um, I can tell you with what assurance I can give you firsthand that the greatest peace 
that is available, tranquility, is that which comes from the end of the war of resistance and denial and repression and um, essentially uh, trying to outrun our feelings and our emotions. And that comes from that great sense of relief when we stop and we turn and we greet and we say hello to all of those impulses that might be called an inner child or a shadow self or whatever you want to call it. And there's this sense of realizing that all of our impulses are all trying to protect us in their own way. And I'm talking about every impulse from the part of us that has panic attacks when we have to speak in front of large groups to the part of us that wants to take drugs whenever we feel stressed to the part of us that wants to um, that shuts down in social situations when we want to be confident and engaging all of those parts in their own way are trying to take care of us they're trying to protect us from old wounds from being re-experienced so Every time we repress, we push away, we turn on a distraction uh, to try to get rid of something, we are uh, essentially continuing the regime of uh, self-denial. So, um, the four foundations of mindfulness is a way to systematically address all of the regions of the brain in a sequential way. Um, It starts with, as I started our tour of the brain, it starts with the expression of the reptilian brain as it is in our experience, which is the way we're breathing. And in the instructions of the Satipatthana, where the Buddha talks about the four foundations, He says the first thing to do is to find a quiet place and to bring awareness to the breath. So when we bring awareness to the breath, we are essentially turning our attention to a a part of our experience that is uh, very often overlooked. Uh, It's actually of... um, extremely utilitarian value, not just to know what the breath is saying, when the breath is, uh, when the out-breath is roughly one and a half to two times the length of the in-breath, your reptilian brain is basically saying that you're safe, that you don't feel that you're under threat. But anytime that ratio changes to a shorter exhalation, your brainstem in conjunction with the medulla is basically saying that you no longer feel safe. So very often old things that were terrifying to a child that shouldn't be terrifying to us adults will activate the reptilian brain. For instance, if in childhood somebody uh, wearing a... uh, uh, or or some form of isolation or some form of, of, uh, of... some trigger might activate the reptilian brain and activate it into a very fast, shallow breath. This is actually uh, very often happening even more so when the midbrain or the mammalian brain kicks in as well. And in conjunction with the reptilian brain, 
creates a feeling of deep unsafety. I'll give you an example. If you're going through a uh, breakup with someone and you're at a table in a restaurant and the tablecloth is checkered and you, uh, it's a very unpleasant experience of course and then years later you run into somebody wearing a checkered bow tie you will very well be expected to dislike this person and the interpretive left hemisphere will immediately create a reason why this person is unlikable. You will have no idea that the reason why you dislike that person is simply because you've associated his bow tie with the tablecloth of a conversation that was unpleasant. Now, if you think that's an outlandish um, example, it's not. It's actually based on an actual case study by Joseph Ledoux that he speaks about at NYU. It shows how so many of our old emotional activations can sometimes be based on strange associations. So what we do in the first foundation of mindfulness is we become aware of the breath and then if it's available to us we might begin to, if we see that we're safe, lengthen the out-breath. You don't have to worry about the in-breath by the way. It, while a lot of people like to talk about it, it really has very little input on your uh, basic settings of your brainstem, but your out-breath is where the action is. So make it as long as you can. Um, now the second foundation, after we become aware of the breath, we become aware of the overall musculature and the front of the body where we get messages of comfort and discomfort. Do I feel relaxed in the situation or do I feel uh, uncomfortable? Do I want this to end? And we're not relying on our thinking. We're not relying on any story of the way we should feel. We're simply looking at what is actually being experienced. So there's no judgment. There's no criticism. There's no sense of the way things should be. We're simply looking at what our experience is and we're simply noting. And then, once again, if we are fairly confident that the discomfort is based on an old association that's no longer true, we would systematically relax those muscles. And I do that very often at the beginning of classes. I have people lift their shoulders, drop them, tighten their belly, release the belly, the reason I do that is because when people come into a meditation class, they very often have a negative association because they're in a group of people that they don't know that well. And of course, the immediate association is high school, class of people, rejection, not being loved, feeling unwelcome. Who are all these people? So understandably, when people go into a new group or a new setting, they very often go into a negative feeling state. Their mammalian brain, their midbrain is saying, get me the hell out of here. So simply by addressing the, the chief areas of the body where discomfort is activated by the mammalian brain, we're talking to the, this part of the brain and we're relaxing it. So, we could say, if we were talking about in terms of animals, 
the reptilian brain would be the lizard, and what you want to do to the lizard is encourage it to breathe in a comfortable way. And then when you get to your mouse brain, you want to pet your mouse brain and tell it to relax. You might even want to, because uh, the mouse brain really, really uh, responds to uh, visualizations of, believe it or not, food. It triggers dopamine. Here, that's its core go-to. That's what it wants, food and warmth. That's what mammals really look for. Uh, as a cat owner, I can assure you of that. Um, so visualize, <laughs> visualize abundance in your life in terms of food, you'll relax it. <laughs> um, soften the front and the musculatures and continue to note the Vedana because it's a very important realm. Interestingly enough, in the, um, an important text called the Abhidhamma, um, Early Buddhists suggested that awareness of feelings in the body were the surest way to interrupt the circuit of suffering, needless suffering in life. So it's very important. The third is then we bring awareness to the citta. And in the sutta, the Buddha basically says, just note whether the mind has got craving or anger or strong emotion or if it doesn't. If the, if the mind is spacious or if it's contracted, if the mind is agitated or settled, is it you know, distracted, is it present? So essentially we're looking for the ways that the emotional mind speak to us. And once again, I definitely always check the muscles in the front of my face because that's where the right hemisphere speaks to me as well. It speaks to you as well. So what we've just done uh, is we've so far essentially inverted the way we normally make decisions, right? Most of us in life, when we make decisions, we try to visualize, think it out, rationalize. We try to rely on the slowest, most, uh, the, the circuits of the brain that sort of arise last. Um, and then we listen to our emotions and then maybe our gut feelings and then last. I don't know of anybody I've ever met who's made a decision in their life based on their breath. <laughs> really? You got divorced? Why? Well, every time I went home, the breathing was just <laughs> shallow. I wasn't relaxed. It wasn't that long, very inconvenient exhalations. I knew there was something wrong. Um, and yeah, um, there's a lot of research today that shows that actually uh, probably the worst way we can make a lot of decisions in life is by relying on the left hemispheric, try to think our way out of it circuits. So much wisdom is actually contained in all those other unconscious areas of the body. I'll give you some examples. If you want to have a just read an entire book of examples. There was a fun, sort of easy reading book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, which sort of goes into all the different ways that what's called thin slicing or the fast circuits. There's another book by Daniel Kahneman, which won the Nobel Prize called Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about how to use 
the different circuits and when each circuit is more efficient. There's a book called Gut Feelings by Gerd Gergenheimer, believe it or not. That is his name. He's actually a famous neuroscientist. There's a book, though, one of my favorites by uh, the greatest, along with Ledoux, the greatest living neuroscientist, in my opinion, is a guy named Antonio Damasio. And he wrote a book called Descartes' Error. And he said that the great error that Descartes made was that he associated existence with thought. And he said this was a tragedy because, in fact, not only um, is thought simply a late-stage representation, but that thinking alone actually tends to make the worst decisions, in his case, studies. Um, famous example he uses, and there's many, but um, if you have famous card players who are you know, essentially professional blackjack and other players, poker players, they, it turns out, use very little thinking in their decisions of when to, uh, shows you how much I know, uh, hold or fold. <laughs> that stupid song keeps coming up on the side. Uh, but apparently, uh, when card players have lesions in a part of the brain called the insula and the orbital frontal, which is the circuits that read your body, they stop being able to win because they've been entirely dependent on gut feelings from the midbrain and from emotional fast circuits to make their decisions. They're reading other players with their right hemisphere, reading their expressions, and they're signaling those, that wisdom through the body. And then they're also signaling uh, positive and negative feelings through the musculature by courtesy of the midbrain. And so when we lose the ability, when we stop paying attention to the body, uh, to the nonverbal circuits of the brain, we start making increasingly um, uh, incorrect choices. In fact, they found that when people have lesions in the left hemisphere, which is the thinking rational brain, they still function very well in life. The only, the only difficulty is uh, because that's the optimistic part of the brain. We, we tend to be a little bit more depressed and we lose most of our language skills. But other than that, you'll still go about and live a very happy, contented life. You'll be able to do everything and you'll make very smart decisions because your right hemisphere has all the neural axonic connections with the body and it's monitoring everything that's going on in the world around you because the right hemisphere is contextual. It's looking at what's actually happening. It's not representing the world as a model of the mind. On the other hand, when people have lesions in the right hemisphere, which is the emotional mind, they become increasingly erratic. They almost immediately lose their jobs. They almost immediately wind up divorced and almost immediately wind up in care because it turns out that the right hemisphere, the emotional brain, is actually what allows us to adapt and be meaningful participants in the world. So your thinking mind, when you're caught up late at night, in the debate or whether you're on a retreat and you're telling yourself, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this or 
I don't know if uh, I'm doing this right or everybody else seems to be content but me. It's just doing what the left hemisphere does. It's trying to represent your experience, try to project into the future, try to turn it into a story and generally a dramatic one. And in fact, it's not generally pushing you to a smart overview of uh, what's really happening. It's taking you further and further away from the truth. But if you rely on the tools of mindfulness, you check in with your breath first. Second, you check in with the gut feelings. You know, what is your basic body saying to you? Is it saying I'm comfortable or I'm uncomfortable? And then you check in with where is your attention going? What sensations, what memories, what, what is the expressions uh, in the musculature on my face? What's the mood in the mind? Is the mind heavy or elated? If we check in in those areas, we'll find that we'll actually leaving the realm of representation and we're returning to the world of what's actually happening. And that's where uh, the real possibility of liberation and happiness and full self-integration begins. So I hope that was enough of a pitch for why mindfulness is a good thing to do. So to relax the, um, the uh, right hemisphere, we would, one, cultivate what's sometimes referred to as a Mona Lisa smile, an unforced smile. We have volitional control over the mouth, so we can actually create a smile. You might also activate what the Buddha called Kaganusati, uh, Silanusati, which is visualize images of how well connected you are to other people, people who care about you, people who love you. You might visualize somebody that you feel safe with. That will activate the positive emotions of the right hemisphere. So if you want to alleviate um, sadness or um, relational emotions, visualizing people that make you feel safe or make you feel loved and connected, or the half smile on the face, or uh, stop the war though with the trying to pull attention to the thing we wanted to think about and allow the mind to go to wherever it's dragging you to and say welcome to it. And when the right hemisphere sees that you're receiving you're allowing it to send you a message. It might be an old memory of um, pain. Sometimes when people are going through breakups, it'll bring up other earlier breakups as an image. And their emotional mind is simply saying, oh no, I'm going to be alone again. If sometimes if we're going through a, a financial situation, we might bring up earlier associations with abandonment as well. The emotional mind is all about how well connected we are to other people. So it would generally bring us again and again to uh, emotionally activated memories of disconnection. And generally for the left hemisphere? Is the, the left hemisphere generally is, is uh, essentially, uh, there's a whole sutta the Buddha had called the five ways to change obsessive thinking. And he talks about, generally what it boils down to is uh, the most important is to replace an unskillful thought about something that's not happening 
with a skillful thought about a, a task positive. When Gilbert and um, Collingsworth and Killingsworth, sorry, at uh, Harvard did their study, they found out that while well, people are the unhappiest when they're in default mode network, when they're representing their life and, you know, visualizing things that are not happening, projecting the future, wondering what other people think about them, thinking about their past. They found that people are the happiest in life when we're actually thinking about what we're doing. So it turns out when we're gardening and we're thinking about how to take care of a plant or when we're, uh, you know, uh, focusing on uh, any activity, drawing, something that is creative, that's present time, Anything that we, anytime we think about what we're actually doing, so in a meditation retreat, you know, think about like, okay, uh, how can I breathe that would be really comfortable if I'm walking? How could I walk in a way that would be really, you know, bring my attention back to focusing on what I'm doing? Can I walk in a different place? Can I change the way I'm walking, etc.? So focus on what we're doing. Uh, all the studies say that that is the surest way to to change uh, stressful thinking into easier thinking. Last night I was talking about how the rational circuits of the brain are, uh, they live in their own sort of secluded realm that's largely um, unaware of the body um, tends to house circuits that are very representational. They, uh, the left hemisphere has, doesn't have a lot of connections, not only to the body, but it has less connections to the processing of external um, stimuli as well. So uh, when we get information and we start thinking a lot about it, we enter a realm that's largely disembodied. And I was reading something kind of interesting when it's the right hemisphere of the brain that is where we have all the body awareness. Um, so, uh, and as this neuroscientist says, the left hemisphere, the realm of thought, ideas, uh, planning, memory of the past, uh, stuff, all the volitional thinking realm tends to view the body in a compartmentalized, inanimate, and hollow way. When people have strokes in their right hemisphere, they lose a lot of their connection to their bodies, especially to their left arms and left legs, because that's the, that's the way the brain works. Your right hemisphere controls your left side of your body, your left hemisphere, your right. So when people lose um, the right hemisphere, the left, because it has very poor body awareness, begins to view the entire other half of the body, not under its control, as belonging to other people. Because they can't figure out why there are these limbs attached that it can't control. Patients will report that the hand not under control, in quotes, doesn't belong to me, that it belongs to another person in the next bed of the hospital. They speak to their hand as if it was made of plastic. One patient complained that there was a dead hand in their bed. 
A male patient thought that the arm must belong to a woman in bed with him. A white woman thought that hers belonged to a little black person in bed with her. Another complained that there was a child in bed. Uh, and here's an actual interview. Examiner, whose arm is that? Patient, it's not mine. <laughs> Doctor, well, then whose is it? Patient thinking, this is your rational mind and mind work, it's my mother's. <laughs> Doctor, well, how on earth did it get there? Patient, I don't know, I found it in my bed. <laughs> Examiner, how long has it been there? Patient, since the first day I arrived in the hospital, see, it's warmer than mine. The other day, too, when it was cold outside, this arm was warmer than mine. Doctor, so where is your left arm? Patient makes a vague gesture forward. It's somewhere over there. <laughs> we can go on. Um, so, when we're young, we use the right hemisphere as the way we connect with uh, caretakers. We express ourselves through embodied emotions. And so, um, uh, there comes an age when uh, that process actually uh, begins to uh, change significantly around the age of three and a half, four. The uh, language skills which have been developing in, in the left hemisphere, there's a time where the left hemisphere starts uh, building uh, neural um, synaptic connections and it starts actually gaining control of consciousness from the right. So we have this great migration that happens around four to five where we begin to view the world not as much embodied, aware of our bodies, in our bodies. We start to think of the world abstractly in stories, in language, in ideas. We represent uh, the world rather than actually live in it. And um, according to the great Winnicott, when that happens, we develop what's called a false self. All the time, our emotions are not uh, seen, taken in, uh, mirrored, tolerated, uh, received. Um, what happens is we begin to view those emotional experiences foreign to us. We don't understand them, much like the hand that's outside of our control. We begin to view the times that we have emotional and physiological experience as uh, something that we can't understand because it's our, in that experience of having an emotion, showing it to a parent, the parent seeing it, mirroring it back, that we begin to understand, oh, that's what my emotion, that's what this is, this is anger, this is sadness, this is fear, this is loss, this is loneliness. So we're very dependent upon these interactions to understand what body experience is. But when we have ex uh, exchanges, say a child uh, is frustrated, it doesn't like the food has been served, it starts to stamp its feet and it, it uh, creates a scene in public and the parent, instead of 
uh, first acknowledging the child, saying, okay, you're upset, I get it, you're unhappy. The parent immediately scolds or yanks the child out of this, the public setting. The child's um, physiological emotional experience is not understood by it, and these emotions become foreign, scary entities that we're not that aware of, that in adult life we begin to repress because we have these scary experiences. So Winnicott said that um, part of what children learn to do is when they have uh, experiences, when they want to connect with other adults, caretakers, peers, and they get rejected, they habitually go up into their thinking representational circuits and create what's called a false self. It's a, a realm of fantasy, and but in, entirely in the head, that is meant to um, essentially buffet, uh, rationalize away what's happened, tell a story so that we don't have to feel the pain in the body of not being seen and understood and connected and uh, appreciated. And then we develop a whole host of repressive uh, tools to start concealing those emotions that other people don't see, don't want to recognize, don't want to uh, tolerate. So my family, it was uh, anger and disappointment. Um, growing up with two uh, first-generation American immigrants who were very uh, trying to succeed in a difficult, uh, challenging capitalist environment. Uh, they were in many ways very approving of creativity, but they were very uh, shunning of disappointment because they took it as a criticism of how successful they had been in assimilating to American culture. So if they fed us food and I didn't want to eat the food, my mom would immediately launch into stories of how I was taking away food from children starving in Africa. I never really quite made the connection. I think it was just her desperately trying to uh, get me to eat. But um, over time, uh, any expression of frustration, or with my dad, who was an alcoholic, expression of anger, I would, or feeling of anger, I would immediately try to get rid of um, by retreating into this realm of rationalization or resentment. And it's interesting, as a way to not feel anger, I would go into stories of how much I didn't like the person who caused the anger, but that story was in a way, a way to deflect from the actual physiological experience of being angry. So you see, it's uh, we tend to confuse the two when we're angry, we tend to feel something in the body that is a, an emotional, natural emotion that's saying, I've been poorly treated, somebody has not respected my boundaries or acted in a way that's unfair, and then we have this feeling, but then we <clears throat> retreat up into the head, into a story, you know, how dare they, that's not right, this is this shouldn't be this way, and we're up there in this representational realm so that we don't have to actually feel 
the painful experience, the physical, somatic experience of anger, which for most of us, uh, anger is a very uh, deeply unpleasant state of being. So we rely on resentments or stories or projections or uh, retelling the story in our head about why we should be angry as a way, oddly enough, to try to get rid of the actual physical feelings of anger. So, um, uh, one great psychologist, uh, Roberto Asagioli, Roberto, what have you got to say? Um, during painful periods in life where we feel disconnected or isolated, extremely negative self-beliefs take on the burden of numbing the underlying physical pain. So what he's saying is that when we go through periods of our life where we feel rejected by peers in school or by siblings or by teachers or by family systems, we create stories about how it's our fault, negative self-beliefs that blame us, but that story is actually serving another purpose, not just explanatory, but a deflecting so that we actually don't have to feel the pain of isolation, rejection, not being loved. So we're constantly using the storytelling, representational, inner uh, worlds, little inner movies we create as a way to buffer ourselves from feeling um, rejected. So the role then becomes how do we, one, ask these, um, for healing's purpose, <clears throat> how do we return and connect with the old wounds and essentially caretake or mother them or nurture them so that uh, we can heal and reintegrate the parts of ourselves that we've been avoiding and essentially buffering ourselves from creating all these stories. Um, there's lots of different strategies. The Buddha, in a wonderful sutta, the Salafa Sutta, talks about when the um, uh, Uninstructed practitioner experiences emotional pain, uncomfortable feelings. The uninstructed practitioner, the Buddha says, becomes filled with stories about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with other people, etc. It's unfair. And they resist experiencing their pain. And that, he says, creates a second arrow that makes our suffering even worse because the underlying physical pain just doesn't go away. It's just pushed beneath awareness where we still, to a certain degree, feel it. But we're now adding this incredibly painful story that there's so much wrong with ourselves and other people. So his solution is, of course, <laughs> sometimes he makes it a little overly simple by half. His solution is, don't do that. Which is, <laughs> you know, not necessarily always the... Uh, I mean, yes, thanks, Buddha. <laughs> but maybe we could use with some additional help. And of course, that's where mindfulness is. It's a systematic, as we talked about, a systematic process of feeling into first the breath, then looking for areas of discomfort 
and comfort that are arising, then looking for the way our attention is moving and the muscles of the face and the front of the body where higher emotions are often expressed. And then you begin to, we begin to systematically reconnect with the physiological expressions that we've been abandoning. Um, one system I like that's really fun, and I'll just go over it kind of briefly. If you want to read about it, there's a ample material. It's a new uh, kind of therapy. Uh, it's called Internal Family Systems by a guy named Schwartz. Nice Jewish name like myself, so I must have gravitated towards it that, for that reason. Um, he breaks down our experience into three parts. He says we have exiles, which are the original pains of being exiled, not loved, not being cared for, not being seen. And these exiles are parts of ourselves that we push down and we don't want to feel under any situation. So the moment we start to experience something in our adult life that reminds us of those early wounds, like the times that peers in schoolyards shunned us, or the times that siblings bullied us, or the times that teachers, it seemed, humiliated us, or the times when parents uh, punished us for reasons we couldn't understand, or family breakups happened, or whatever, we um, hold these wounds and exiled uh, feelings that are submerged. And similar to the Buddhist theory of Chaita Sikas, then um, Schwartz says we have two other factors in us that help this process of repression. We have managers and firefighters. Managers are essentially the workings of your left hemisphere. They're the structures and systems that we put together in our life that look good to other people, that are there to keep us from ever experiencing pain or rejection ever again. In other words, we're looking to have a life with uh, a complete immunity to pain or emotional suffering or feelings of abandonment or feelings of criticism or rejection or not being loved. So these managers look good to other people. They're approved of. They're largely um, conscious systems. And uh, they're very often the structures that start out early in life and then they determine the work we do in life. And then uh, over time, though, they become so dominant that uh, we can't escape them. Things like caretaking, uh, the child that grows up with parents that are, or one parent that's not fully emotionally uh, consistent or even ir completely irrational or suffering from personality disorder, the child learns to not express its emotions and thus becomes, uh, to, s to maintain a relationship with this difficult parent, becomes a caretaker. The, parent, the child takes care of the parent. And then very often these people grow up to take on caretaking roles in their relationships and in their work as a way to maintain secure relationships with other people without having to risk expressing their actual needs or emotions. So it's a role we determine early in life. Interestingly enough, um, I know uh, another Buddhist teacher, she's really quite wonderful, and she'll, quite frankly, if you meet her, talk about how she grew up in a family with a father who was... Uh, drug addict musician 
And as a child, the only way she could survive was by taking care of her father, making sure the bills were paid, making sure there was food, even from like eight. She was essentially mothering her father. And so as an adult, she became a very, very famous, um, uh, I'll just say, uh, person in Hollywood who works with extremely difficult, out of control, you know, movie directors. And she made a lot of money essentially taking care of men, mostly, who were acting in the exact way her father was. So this is an example of how early childhood coping can then turn into an entire adult life where we essentially live in the same patterns. Other children learn to be self-sufficient when they have a need rather than speaking about it. They will keep their chin up, keep a stiff upper lip, always show up to work no matter how sick or how, because they've learned that any sign of of uh, suffering or pain would lead to being engulfed or taken control of by the parent or would lead to, un lead to difficult situations. Some of us internalize a severe inter inner critic because we didn't, um, we either one had caretakers who were excessively um, punishing and we interjected their voice, or two, we grew up in the exact opposite an environment where there wasn't any um, sense of meaningful input, and so we relied on developing our own severe self-regulating inner voices that kick up, and if you're on a retreat and you have a severe inner tyrant, you'll tell yourself that you're doing everything wrong and everybody else is doing it right but you. Um, there's the people pleaser, the person that puts on the, the host, the hostess, the smiling face, the entertainer. One famous comedian, I believe it was Jim Carrey, I'm not sure, gave an interview where he said that uh, his entire life was shaped by the fact that he grew up in a family with like eight children and the only way to get any attention that was secure was by being funny and being larger than life. So um, that leads to all kinds of, uh, if, it takes, if any of these are taken to an extreme, of course they stifle the life out of us because all of these strategies these managers, as it were, are essentially numbing our feelings, our needs, and they're keeping us from actually taking the risk of expressing them to ourselves and to other people for uh, emotional support and regulation. They're unsustainable. So when these uh, coping strategies or managers that look really good to other people stop working, then we have a second set of fallback mechanisms which are called our firefighters. And those are the parts of us that are not so pretty. They're the binging addict, the part of us that after we spend a whole day taking care of other people goes home and binge watches Netflix and eats Oreos. I worked with someone who uh, worked all day long at a uh, in a sort of high-end restaurant bar and so his manager that he learned from his family life to um, 
to survive because he was gay and he grew up in a very homophobic environment was what he calls jazz hands. Mm -hmm. I like that. It's the, oh, you're so wonderful, let me take care of you personality that would essentially run around and make everybody feel important. And so, of course, in doing this, his own needs, his own sadness, his own anger, his own true human experience was being lost. So what he would do is go home and then binge watch TV and eat tubs of ice cream. So firefighters and managers can begin to form really efficient teams. Some of us can be really hard, self-sufficient workers and then go home and drink ourselves to sleep. Some people can work in very isolating, uh, self-regulating jobs and then go home and spend the nights uh, either playing video games or whatever. So this pairing of uh, structures that help us survive and look good and never be dropped by the world and then the fallback mechanisms that, cup, that kick up to kill the pain if our normal uh, working coping strategies don't work they can form a very efficient tandem. And uh, so our role here is to uh, begin to look past these uh, very efficient systems and to try to reconnect with the exiled emotional wounds and feelings um, that are essentially waiting for us. And it's not just so that we can, we can spend this retreat experiencing a whole bunch of sadness. Actually, there's this amazing uplift that happens when we reconnect and hold and nurture and take care of the parts of ourselves that we thought were unlovable. And when we do this, also there becomes times when after spending, it doesn't really take that long, I spend five, ten minutes feeling the feelings and then what follows is this incredible feeling of uh, openness and connection with the world because I'm not numbing the right hemisphere, the emotional embodied circuits anymore. I'm opening to them. So there's a strategy that's used and that I would encourage you to employ today which is called RAIN, uh, developed by Michelle McDonald and um, popularized by Tara Brock, um, which is a lovely example of two women working together to create something that has benefited so many people. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful practice. And it is, uh, I really encourage uh, trying it out. RAIN is an acronym, and almost all acronyms, as I say, are really generally pretty awful things. But in this case, um, it's not so bad. Uh, RAIN stands for recognize, accept, investigate, and then originally it stood for not identify, but um, I really dislike that. And I have always taught it to be nurturer. And then, oddly enough, I looked on some talks by Tara Brack and I realized that she'd done the same thing too, entirely independently. She also changed it from non-identified to nurturer. 
to take care of your feelings. So what this means is recognize is to keep enough awareness of the experience that's not in the thinking, representational, storytelling, inner visuals, the stuff we're creating, mind, and bring enough attention uh, to the breath, the feelings in the front of the body, the musculature, the feelings in the front of the face, the awareness of where the attention is going and the overall mood of the mind, all of the essentially nonverbal parts of the brain and just have enough awareness of what you are experiencing so that you begin to realize when an emotion is happening. And again, this might sound like, oh, I'm pretty aware of when I have my emotions, but actually most of us by the time we reach adult life are pretty efficient in completely repressing, suppressing, denying uh, the existence of emotions extremely quickly before we even realize it. So it actually requires developing some sustained uh, ongoing mindfulness, a sustained dedication to just noticing the parts of the body where emotional states are most active. In my case, I've found that just a general awareness of the breath and my stomach is enough. Um, I don't do all of the different foundations of mindfulness. I just check the belly and the breathing and I can pretty much tell when an underlying emotion is present because my stomach will start to get really tight. There'll be this contraction in the stomach muscles and also the out-breath will get much shallower and more cut off than when I'm relaxed and I'm, I'm truly present. So those are my canaries in the mind shaft, as it were. I encourage you each to come up with your own tells, as it were, when there's an underlying experience of uh, anger, disappointment, loneliness, whatever it is we're pushing away. Then we uh, accept it. We, we welcome it. We don't push it away. We say, it's okay. It's all right. You're allowed. You're, this is... This is permitted, this is wanted. I want you to be with me. We don't start, we don't um, go into the why we shouldn't feel this way, the inner critic of why we shouldn't be sad or be angry or be anything, nor do we go into the baiting it on. If we feel angry, we don't go into the story about why we should be angry. We just stay with the actual sensations of anger in the stomach, throat, in the face, in the breath, wherever you feel it, the clenched jaw, the furrowed brow, the tightness in the micro muscles around the eyes, wherever we feel it, we stay with those uh, sensations. And then we investigate further. We go fully into the body and we want to become acquainted and essentially take care of these emotional experiences that so early on in life were not tolerated or mirrored and so we just examine we start scanning into the experience of being angry and or sad or whatever and we uh, we connect with it now finally the last part is nurturing which is to essentially 
either visual or very, very simple metaphrase. It's okay. I love you. Keep going. I love you. Keep going. I love you. Keep going. It's okay. I'll take care of you. Um, anything that creates a safe container for the emotion to be uh, held and to be reintegrated. Now many of us might, after I give full permission to and encouragement to feel into negative experiences, might go through the rest of this retreat without anything coming up. Um, and there's a second part to this practice which I use, which is whenever um, there's uh, a lot of thinking going on, a lot of self-righteous thinking about how the person next to me is breathing too loud or the roommate isn't doing what they should or the, the you know, something about this retreat should be different or whatever story kicks up, that's invariably a manager. And so my role in uh, to do this work is to speak to those managers in me that tell me the way the world should be and are actually there to repress something that is lurking beneath. Whenever there's any form of obsessive thinking, any kind of repetitive thought, I'll turn to it and I'll ask, okay, what's your job? Or what, is, what are you trying to achieve? What do you want me to know? And it'll come up and it'll say, well, of course, things should be different. None of this is the way it should be. People should behave different. Uh, things should be done differently. And then I ask, okay, and here's where the real important uh, part is. I'll ask the manager, okay, what do you fear would happen if you don't get your way? What are you frightened of happening if I don't listen to you? What are you frightened of happening if I don't listen to the speech? And then it'll say, well, things will all go to crap. People will just do what they want. I'll just do what I want. If I don't beat up on myself, I won't get up out of bed in the morning. I won't achieve anything in my life. I'll be lazy, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll say, okay, so what are we frightened about that? What's the fear there? And then I'll start doing the rain. I'll actually start encouraging myself to go into the places that scare me so that I can connect with whatever it is my managers are terrified of experiencing. So that's just a way to sometimes work with managers. So let's uh, stop listening to me prattle on. Let's do a little practice. So find a comfortable position. so that I leave you enough time to find out uh, where the um, meetings with the teachers are, which group you're in. So closing the eyes and just lifting up the shoulders, holding them up like you're trying to touch the ears and then dropping them heavily. So great. And then 
tightening the belly really tight and then releasing. And then squinching the muscles in the face, really tight, ugly face, ugly face, ugly face, and then release. And then squinching any other, tightening any other muscles that you'd like, the fists, the toes, the buttocks, the muscles in the back, tight and release. And a nice full in-breath, and then when we release it, very long. <coughs> So hopefully right now we're in a vaguely neutral emotional and physical state that we can use as a kind of uh, blank canvas. And then I want you to bring to mind some experience that's happened here on the retreat that has been amongst all the wonderful, joyous times. One. Uh, experience that was frustrating, difficult, challenging, maybe your neighbor woke you up snoring, maybe seeing frost on the ground, I don't know. Uh, and if nothing from this retreat comes to mind, if it's all been a blur of ease, then uh, bring to mind something very recently, something that got your goat, as it were. And then we want to encourage rather than push away the feeling, and we do that by asking ourselves, how does it feel? How does it feel to have somebody be unkind, somebody not call us when we wanted them to? How does it feel to be lonely? How does it feel to be not seen? How does it feel to be unappreciated? You can even, if you want, hold a static image in the mind, not to create a distraction or a way out, but actually to activate even more of the emotion. So there's a single image associated with this disappointment or difficult experience. Just hold an image of the person's face or the, something redolent that activates the emotion. Just ask, how does it feel? How does it feel? Open questions. How does it feel not to be seen, not to be cared about? Just asking questions which tends to encourage the emotion rather than push it away. But bringing awareness to any area in the body where sadness or disappointment or whatever might be expressed. Maybe in the face or in the eyes, maybe in the chest, maybe in the throat, a tightening, or maybe in the belly.
And then sometimes when we do this work, nothing appears, but if even a slight feeling arises, just investigate around it. What is it like to be with this emotion, this experience, rather than running from it? What is it like to actually encourage my anger? Can I be with my anger rather than immediately abandon it in favor of resentments and long inner speeches about how the world should be? Can I hold that tightness of anger, that heat, convulsions of energy at the front of the body, the locked jaw. And the final stage of this, after we've recognized, or in this practice, we've actually encouraged an emotion to appear. We've accepted it, welcomed it, not pushed it away. Investigating the sensations in the body, investigating even how much the thinking mind will want to pull us away from feeling into an experience and will want to essentially again and again try to distract us. So just note the entire state of being jealous. the entire state of being worried, the entire state of being disappointed, whatever is seeking our attention. And then bringing to mind an exceptionally simple phrase that's very suggestive of caretaking and love and compassion, just dropping into the body from the mind. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. It's okay. I'm allowed to feel this. I'm allowed to be this. I'm allowed to have this. 
I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Whatever part of yourself you've been running from, see if you can greet it, get to know it, and just offer it love, compassion, care. Finally giving it a home. I love you, keep going. So when we end this practice, in no way should we be thinking about tucking away or putting away or filing away whatever we connect with. Um, just allow it to be part of the experience that's integrated in. So when we open our eyes uh, after doing this practice, whenever we do it, Try to see if you can maintain some awareness of the embodied feeling and like a, an inner child bringing it with us into the world rather than pushing it away from us. I don't encourage, obviously, doing rain all the time. It would be a very intense practice. Uh, I generally do rain in my day-to-day -day life whenever there's been either one flare-up of self-righteous, busy, obsessive ideations in the mind telling me that uh, either worrying about something that might happen or uh, being upset about something that actually did happen. And so when I'm caught up in that inner storytelling, representation, outrage, whatever, I generally then tend to sit and do rain. And it's not a practice that I do for extended periods. I'll go back to the breath or open-ended awareness or choiceless awareness, different practices. But I try to make, set aside time each day to connect, especially when the mind is revved up with outrage or stories or, you know, worry about the future, any, any busyness in the representational thinking. Um, or B, when I'm just beginning to feel on the edges of awareness, some form of uh, physiological stress. Uh, that's almost an, invariably a tell that there's an emotion present. So I hope that this was of some value uh, and uh, 
I thank you for listening. And now uh, I encourage you to uh, see where your interviews are and to continue with your uh, diligent practice. And I look forward uh, to checking in with you.